Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What color were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Just a heads up, if you're listening to this while driving or laying in bed late at night, this episode uses sudden sound effects. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Elders past and present. Welcome to Season 6 of Forgotten Australia. It's been a while since a new episode, so I'm kicking things off with two multi-part deep-dive episodes. I guess you'd call them a sequence. This one, Pearl Harbor and the Paycar Ambush, is a two-parter, and it relates to the next one, a four-parter called The Terrible Mr. Thomas. And he really was quite terrible. How do these episodes link? Well, that would be telling. All installments will be released in the next couple of weeks but they're available right now early and ad-free as a thank you to Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. This episode was made possible thanks to their contributions. Funds help me pay to have files digitised by the National Archives of Australia, to visit the State Library of New South Wales and the New South Wales State Archives, and to have the New South Wales Police's Homicide Squad search their files for historic murder records. So when you become a supporter or a subscriber, you're helping to make Forgotten Australia. And of course, in addition to early ad-free episodes, you also get exclusive bonus shows. Links to Patreon and Apple are in your show notes. And if you'd like to try before you buy, you can get a three-day free trial via Apple that'll give you access to all early ad-free episodes and to already released bonus apps. So feel free to help yourself. Cancelling the free trial is easy. But if you like what you hear, then you'll be paying about the same as a cup of coffee a month to help me make this show. Unfortunately, Patreon doesn't let me offer you a free trial. If you've become a supporter or a subscriber since the last new episode, your shout-out is at the end of this instalment. All Forgotten Australia episodes are also made with the use of Australian newspapers freely available at the National Library of Australia's Trove database. You might have heard recently that Trove's funding is under threat. Without it being secured in the middle of this year, Australians will lose access to one of our most important free historical resources. At this point, what you can do to help is sign a petition to save Trove. There's one at change.org and another at the Australian Government's website. Take a moment to sign both of them and share these links, which are in your show notes. Now it's time to go back to the day the world changed in a huge way that everyone knows about, and in another way that's been completely forgotten. It's early in the morning, Monday the 8th of December 1941, and Australia's enduring a fitful sleep before the rising sun ushers in the new working week. To be honest, the Sunday that just ended wasn't much of a day of rest. That's because the newspapers and radio broadcasts were filled with the latest on the war crisis. America's demand that Japan stand down from its militaristic build-up in the Pacific has been rebuffed. Diplomatic relations between the two nations are in shreds. As Sydney's The Sunday Sun put it in a big front-page headline, Pacific Explosion Feared. The paper's editorial began, 
Australia stands on the very brink of a war no longer remote, a war which may reach our own coasts. Prime Minister John Curtin has cancelled all army leave in Darwin, sent RAAF bombers to Malaya and Java, and ordered one million gas masks for Australian civilians. But there's still a chance that war may be averted. Apparently, support exists in important Tokyo economic, political and diplomatic circles for a Japanese-American commission to be established to defuse this terrible situation. Australia is hoping for the best, but it's expecting the worst. As The Sun put it yesterday, quote, The people must steal their resolution to meet a threat unprecedented in the peaceful history of our land. What perhaps helps Australians rest just a little easier is the knowledge that they're protected by formidable defences. Allied forces stretch across the Pacific, from Australian-administered New Guinea and the Dutch East Indies to British Singapore and Malaya, and farther east to the American-occupied Philippines and Hawaii. If the Japanese dare strike anywhere, there's going to be hell to pay. So maybe, maybe it'll all just blow over. In the darkness of this Monday morning, while Prime Minister Curtin snatches a few hours sleep at Melbourne's Victoria Hotel, Department of Information personnel at a listening post at Mont Park monitor international shortwave broadcasts for any new developments. At 5.45am, from out of the static, comes a report from the BBC. They've just received a flash from Washington. Pearl Harbour in Hawaii? is being attacked from the air. The Prime Minister's press secretary wakes him with the terrible news. Mr Curtin says, Well, it has come. Minute by minute, updates flood in about the scope of this brutal surprise offensive. It's not just Pearl Harbour that's been hit. The Japanese have also launched an invasion of British Malaya. Before the Australian government makes any official announcement, journalist Ian Hamilton is on ABC Radio waking up the country to a new world that's in flames. Japan has declared war on the United States and on Britain. While Mr Curtin is yet to make a formal declaration, Australia is now in a state of war with Japan. Hitler and Mussolini will almost certainly throw in with Emperor Hirohito. The Second World War is upon civilization. It's expected to be a conflagration of total extermination. Yet, even though the world has changed overnight, will never be the same again, life has to go on this Monday in Australia's cities and towns. Yes, people will talk of little else except the unfolding events, but many will do so while they're working their ordinary jobs. Serving customers in stores, shuffling paper in offices, receiving deposits in banks, teaching kids in schools, caring in hospital wards and toiling in factories and on farms. Same goes for the men and women of the New South Wales Railways. Outside of the Australian military, this state government department is the biggest employer in Australia. Some 42,000 workers ensure the trains run safely and on time across what is the country's largest network. With many of these employees spread widely across New South Wales, their fortly payrolls are delivered in what is known as rail cars. These are petrol-powered, single-carriage vehicles that look like buses, except they ride the tracks. And today, paycar number 155, as it's officially designated, is carrying 11,232 pounds. These wages are to be delivered to nearly 1,000 men along the main southern line from Campbelltown to Goulburn. 11,232 pounds. That's as much money as the average man might be paid in a lifetime. And this fortune in untraceable cash is kept secure inside a heavy safe that's welded to the steel chassis of the pay car. All three crew members, driver, guard and paymaster, pack loaded revolvers. Any would-be robbers risk a hail of lead. But as Pearl Harbor has just shown, is right at this moment still showing even the strongest defences can't guarantee protection, especially not from a determined enemy that's bent on a ruthless and overwhelming surprise attack.
I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, Pearl Harbor and the Paycar Ambush. Whenever a big event takes place, how much media coverage it gets is decided by what are called news values. These comprise a story's impact, its timeliness, how close it is to home, the prominence of the participants, the level of conflict involved, how unexpected the event is, and the amount of human interest at play. If innocent people are killed nearby, if a much-loved celebrity dies, if a big political scandal erupts, then you've got a story that will dominate front pages, home pages, TV and radio news bulletins. Yet, there's a rare exception. That's when this story is competing with another story in which more innocents are killed even closer, a more famous celebrity dies, or a bigger political scandal has erupted. The most famous example of this news displacement are the deaths of Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, and C.S. Lewis, author of the Narnia Chronicles. After respective long illnesses, these two literary lions died in England on the evening of the 22nd of November, 1963. Which one dominated the headlines? Neither, because President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated just hours earlier. Similarly, when Groucho Marx passed out of the world in August 1977, the joke was on him for leaving the building the same week as Elvis Presley. A more recent and local example was Ansett's final days in the beautiful early spring of 2001. The death of this airline, which had served our skies for 65 years, was front page day after day, right up to and including the morning papers on Tuesday the 11th of September. Through that day and into the evening, Ansett's woes were the biggest story in Australia. Then everything changed, and the 9-11 terror attacks dominated the media. Ansett's collapse saw it go into administration on the 12th of September. 16,000 people were immediately thrown out of work, and this was the largest single job loss event in Australian history. The importance of this story hadn't changed, but the amount of attention given to it had. To find Ansett coverage, you had to dig deep into the newspapers. A tragedy overshadowed by a far greater tragedy. In similar fashion, under normal circumstances, what happened 70 miles southwest of Sydney on the morning of the 8th of December 1941 would have ruled the headlines for days. But that day was anything but normal, and so Pearl Harbour pushed the paycar ambush into the back pages. It never did get a lot of news traction, and that helped to ensure that today it's all but forgotten. In the early decades of the 20th century, wages were delivered to regional and remote New South Wales rail workers by a pay clerk and a guard riding on a regular passenger steam train. This wasn't ideal for a couple of reasons. Most practically, the system caused delays for passengers because the train had to stop frequently to pay gangs of labourers along any given rail route. Then, of course, there was the risk of robbery. These men were escorting a large sum of money in cash in a compartment that was connected to other passenger carriages where bad men might be lurking. In June 1937, the New South Wales Railways Department experimented with a new solution. A rail car with a petrol-powered 30-horsepower Ford V8 engine. Fitted with flanged steel wheels, this vehicle could ride the rails and was tested at 40 miles per hour. The rear axle ran at four different speeds in either direction. What this meant was the vehicle could be driven from both ends and had no need for a turntable when it reached its destination. Built of solid steel, the rail car weighed five tons. It was to be manned by a driver, a guard and a paymaster. This first pay car delivered wages to workers along the hundreds and hundreds of miles from Newcastle to South Brisbane. The trial route was deemed successful and the department placed orders for three more rail cars. Yet when these rolled off the assembly line, officialdom decreed these vehicles were to be used as rail buses for passengers on branch lines out of Cowra and Harden in the southwest of the state. They were actually pretty schmick rides. 
Each bus could carry 17 passengers who'd sit on comfortable seats of Dunlop pillow set into shiny chromium tubing. Wide windows gave everyone the sort of view you'd normally only get from a train's observation car. From the outside, the rail buses were attractive. Streamlined, finished in cream and blue, with chromium-plated bumper bars and headlamps at each end. An October report in Sydney paper Daily Commercial News and Shipping List said, quote, They represent a very smart addition to passenger rolling stock. They also came with a safety innovation in a traverse bar at each end that was set just above rail clearance. As the paper explained, In the event of a derailment, these bars act as skids, precluding capsize and ensuring the safety of passengers. The railways department even tested this, deliberately derailing a rail bus at 30 miles an hour. The result? The daily commercial news was there, quote, No damage was done, and the car was speedily re-railed. Style, space, speed and safety, the rail buses offered the lot. More were being made to follow the three now going into service. But despite all of this promise, and a warm welcome in the west of the state, by May 1939, officialdom had changed its mind. The Secretary of Railways decided that not enough people were using them. So all but one rail bus was withdrawn from passenger service. The other five that had been built were now to be used for their original purpose, as mobile pay offices for the rail network. The fact that huge amounts of cash were continually being transported around the state in rail cars was not any sort of secret. Thousands and thousands of workers got their fortnightly pays this way. So a lot of people were in the know, particularly when you factored in all the people these workers knew. Besides, the occasional money train mishap also made the newspapers. In July 1938, that first pay car on the northern line derailed when it hit a stone on the tracks near Kyogle. Grafton's The Daily Examiner reported that the rail car wasn't damaged, though other trains were delayed until it was put to rights and continued on its way. In July 1939, the pay car carrying wages to workers on the line between Ivanhoe and Menendee suffered an engine blowout. Per a report in Broken Hill's Barrier Minor newspaper, this pay car was stranded in the outback for many hours before repairs were made. Then, the following month, the Northwestern Courier at Narrabri reported that a money-laden rail motor had derailed in Maitland. Luckily, the men and machine were, again, no worse for wear and were able to carry on with their cash delivery duties. But such reports might be enough to get crooked minds ticking over. Rail cars rattling along remote lines carrying vast sums of cash. How hard could it be to derail one and hold it up? Except, of course, you'd then have to deal with the driver, guard and paymaster, all of them armed with revolvers. On the morning of the 8th of December 1941, as news of the attack on Pearl Harbour swept Sydney, Paycar FP-155's three-man crew arrived at Clyde Station. They boarded their heavy steel vehicle via the single sliding door and settled into their seats. 11,232 pounds in the safe. Simply adjusted for inflation, that's $1 million today. But a better measure of its worth is found in the Sydney Morning Herald's classifieds from that very morning. Quote, Mossman, two-story home, very good location, level, near trams and shops, harbour views, nine rooms, offices and garage, perfect order. The asking price? £2,750. So the money in the safe would buy that swanky place four times over. For the next seven and a half hours, driver George Randall would stop the rail car at platforms, sidings and workers' camps. At these places, under the watch of guard Alfred Philpot, paymaster Frederick Walker would hand out rolls of coins and bundles of one and five pound notes to local paymasters, pay clerks and gang bosses. FP-155 was due to complete its run just after 3.30 in the afternoon at Goulburn. 
With no stops to make on the return journey, the men would be back in Sydney with their families around nightfall. At 8 o'clock that morning, driver Randall gave a blast from the railcar's roof-mounted air horns and chugged away from the platform. The railcar motored southwest, past Fairfield, Warwick Farm and Macquarie Fields. As FP155 rode the rails, what did its crew members discuss? It's reasonable to assume they talked about what everyone was talking about, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. This wasn't like the outbreak of war in Europe in September 1939. Back then, it had taken six months for the start of major combat hostilities between the Allies and the Nazis. But this very morning, right now, the Japanese were still attacking Pearl Harbor and Malaya. Where would the enemy strike next? How would Australia help to hit back? FP-155 stopped at Picton around 10 o'clock in the morning. As the men were going about their work delivering wages, Australia's Prime Minister was making his first public statement as he entered an urgent meeting of the War Cabinet in Melbourne. Mr Curtin said, The thread by which peace was hanging has been snapped. Men and women of Australia, Japan has commenced a war in the Pacific in which our security and our vital interests are at stake. I ask the people of Australia to give the best that they can in the service of this country. The fighting forces are at battle stations. Every other man and woman should be at some place of usefulness. This is the gravest hour of history. We have a heavy responsibility. I ask every Australian man and woman to go about their allotted task with full vigour and courage. The New South Wales Railways would be essential for the war effort. And keeping workers paid, this was a small but absolutely vital cog in that machine. Already, just hours into it, the war had changed things. At Picton, FP-155 was delayed 10 minutes because there was a special troop train on the line ahead of them. That troop train was enough to make anyone wonder. Where would the diggers in those carriages be in a few weeks from now, or a few months? But the men of FP-155 knew they weren't going to be fighting the Japanese on some foreign front. In addition to their work being an essential service, each of them was just way too old to enlist. Driver George Randall had done his bit in the last war, and he'd been lucky to get back in one piece. Born in 1891 and raised in Sydney, George had come of age when the exciting new world of motor vehicles provided young men with novel job opportunities. On the 1913 electoral roll, as found at Ancestry.com.au, George listed himself as a chauffeur. When the Great War broke out a year later, battlefields weren't only transformed by machine guns, poison gas and aeroplanes. Motorised transport now moves soldiers, weapons and supplies. In September 1916, aged 25, George Randall volunteered himself and his driving and mechanical skills for the Western Front. Signing up, he trained in Victoria and was assigned the rank of driver to serve with the 2nd Auxiliary Mechanical Transport Company. Two months after he enlisted, George married Gladys Watson, a young woman from northern New South Wales but these newlyweds didn't get to spend much time together because George shipped out three days before Christmas. By the middle of 1917, George was driving supply vehicles as part of the 5th Division's Mechanical Transport Company. On the 12th of March 1918, George was transferred to do another sort of work that had been revolutionised by motor vehicles, driving for the 14th Field Ambulance. Nine days later, the German Spring Offensive began with Operation Michael. Some quarter of a million Allied soldiers would be killed or wounded in the next two weeks. Lives in this hellscape depended on driver George Randall having nerves of steel and steady hands on the wheel. Operation Michael failed in its bold objective to drive the Allies into the sea. Subsequent German spring offensive thrusts were as costly and as pointless. On the 20th of May 1918, George Randall suffered a minor shrapnel wound to the head. 
he was lucky. On the same day, one of his 14th field ambulance comrades, Corporal Joseph Saunders, died of battlefield wounds. By October 1918, a new enemy had emerged on the front lines, the Spanish flu. On the 30th of that month, another one of George's comrades, Private Mervyn Thornton, died of the dreaded bug. Three days later, George was admitted to hospital with the Spanish flu. And again, he'd be lucky. Not only did he survive, but by the time he recovered, the guns had fallen silent. George Randall was back home in Sydney by September 1919. He and Gladys got a place in Canterbury and tried to make the most of the peace and prosperity. The motor vehicle industry, which had stalled during the war, was now roaring back to life. In 1920, there'd been just 36,000 cars, trucks and motorbikes registered in New South Wales. People were dependent on tram and train lines. But some of these didn't reach into new suburbs that were opening up. So there was a big and ever-growing demand for private motor buses. George and his older brother, who was also a mechanic, saw their chance to make their mark and make some money from moving people around. In mid-1922, they started the Randall Motor Bus Service. A year later, Anzac Day 1923, George and Gladys had a daughter they named Gwyneth. For a return digger, he was doing well. He had all his limbs, a wife and child, and was working for himself. Private buses were a booming business, and fortunes were being made. Just not by George and his brother. By the middle of 1924, they were in bankruptcy court. But despite his financial troubles, as a motor mechanic, George shouldn't want for work. After all, by 1929, there were nearly a quarter of a million motor vehicles on the state's roads. That number would have kept increasing exponentially, if not for the October 1929 Wall Street crash, triggering the Great Depression. Over the next three years, motor vehicle ownership fell by 20%, and many car and motorbike owners who were doing it tough were now doing their own maintenance and repairs. Perhaps this was why, in January 1933, George Randall signed on as a motor mechanic with the New South Wales Railways. He would have felt lucky to have a secure job during the rest of that turbulent decade when so many men remained unemployed or underemployed. In mid-1939, the New South Wales Railways had a new opportunity for George Randall. They needed a few drivers for the rail cars being put into service as mobile pay officers. There can't have been too many men better qualified than George. He'd driven cars and buses, and he knew how to fix both if they broke down. George got his new job in October 1939, shortly after the new war broke out in Europe. 1941 saw him mark several milestones. He turned 50, he and Gladys celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary, and their beloved Gwyneth was now 18 and soon to get married. On the morning of the 8th of December 1941, with the wireless bringing news that the world was ablaze, George sat down to breakfast with his wife and daughter. He said his goodbyes, packed his lunch, and said he'd see them when he got back from Goulburn that night. Picton, where FP-155 was delayed by that special troop train, was near where guard Alfred Philpot was born in 1889. Unlike driver Randall, whose career had zigged and zagged, Alfred had spent his entire adult life with the railways, joining the department in 1906 at the age of 17. He'd begun his career as a shop boy at Randwick Station's Electrical Works. Alfred had then worked as a porter and as a conductor. In 1912, he married a woman named Jessie Bruce. They lived in Marrickville and the next year had a baby son named Edward. In May 1914, Alfred became an assistant guard. As a married man, raising a child and working in an essential industry, he wasn't expected to enlist to fight in the Great War. But he was embroiled in a historic conflict on the home front. In July 1917, the New South Wales Department of Railways and Tramways introduced a new time card system to monitor worker productivity in the state's workshops. This was considered an outrageous affront to the honesty, decency, skill and craft of union employees, 
particularly during a period when real wages were continuing to fall significantly. At the start of August 1917, nearly 6,000 union members went on strike. The Great Strike, as it would come to be known, spread to some 100,000 workers in other industries, notably on the waterfront and in the coal mines, mostly in New South Wales and Victoria, but also in other states. Entries in Alfred's employment file in the New South Wales State Archive are handwritten, except for the one that's a purple inked stamp that reads, 14817, dismissed by proclamation, left work on strike. So many men were sacked that day, it would have strained Clark's time and wrist to manually write it into every personnel record. The great strike became more bitter over the ensuing weeks. Eventually, workers began to capitulate. Although the railway men held out the longest, by early October 1917, Alfred Philpot was back at work. Ensuring that he was bringing home a steady wage was even more important after he and Jesse had a daughter, Merle, in September 1918. Alfred's career progressed. He became a shunter, then, in March 1926, was promoted to the role of goods guard. Five years later, he was elevated to guard on the electric trains on the city network. And five years after that, he was a guard class two. In November 1940, his son Edward, who was now 27, got married to a Marrickville girl. Daughter Merle was by now 22 and working as a sales assistant. Before long, George, who was now 52, would likely be a grandfather. But it was FP-155's paymaster, Frederick William Walker, who was the grand old man of the crew. He was almost 54, and he'd been a rail worker the longest. Fred came, if you'd pardon the pun, from a railway line. He was born in Goulburn, where the rail car was now heading, and his old man, Fred Senior, had worked on the trains all his life, starting as a cleaner, becoming a fireman, and graduating to driver. Old Fred had worked this very route for years. When the great strike came, he didn't walk out, and his file got stamped, stayed loyal. Fred Jr. started with the railways in 1903 as a messenger in Redfern's electrical department. He worked his way up to be a switcher, a telephone boy, and a junior porter. But unlike Fred Sr., Fred Jr. went into the clerical side of things, attached to the chief accountant's office as a clerk from 1912. Fred was a family man. He married Gladys Kane in June of 1916, and they lived in Elizabeth Bay. They had a son, Colin, in August 1917. This was the month the Great Strike began, and white-collar salaried man Fred didn't go out either. Fred was promoted from cash-receiving clerk to pay clerk, and in May 1927, he became a paymaster. This new role, with a bumped-up annual salary, coincided with the birth of his daughter Betty. But Fred, like other public servants, had to take a pay cut during the early years of the Great Depression. And this coincided with the late-in-life birth of a son named John in 1931. Once the economy was back on track and things were getting back to normal, Fred's salary was restored and increased further when he was promoted to first-class paymaster in October 1937. Fred spent much time working in the area he'd been born and raised. One newspaper would say that nearly every man working on the railways between Campbelltown and Cooma knew Fred Walker. Quote, he was the most popular of paymasters. He was obliging, jolly, and often went out of his way to do a good turn to a fellow employee. On the 8th of December 1941, Fred's younger children, Betty, now 14, and John, aged 10, were finishing up the term at their school in Barrel. But Fred's oldest boy, Colin, who was now 24, was living in England. He'd been seconded from the RAAF to the RAF and was training to fly missions against the Nazis. Would Colin now be coming back to defend Australia from the sort of Japanese air attack the world had just witnessed at Pearl Harbour? This might have been on Fred's mind as FP-155 rolled south to its next pay stop. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. By the time the rail car left Bargo Station, they'd paid out nearly £2,700 in wages. Fred took around £2,500 from the safe, and this was to be paid out over the next stretch of line. At 11.35am, the rail car pulled into Yandera Station. 68 miles southwest of Sydney, the little village of Yandera was bordered east, west and south by rugged bush and hills. Here, they paid solitary timekeeper Thomas Hawkins. Then, FP-155 motored away from Yandera Station towards Yerimbul. Their next stop was a fettler's camp two miles away. The railcar chugged beneath a Hume Highway bridge. While they were 10 minutes behind schedule because of that troop train, driver George Randall had to slow down as he came onto a high embankment that followed a horseshoe bend through the bush. It was 11.40am now, and when they were clear of this curve, maybe he could put on a bit of speed to make up some time and... Like the men of FP-155, John Gersbach was also a railways veteran. Since 1915, he'd been a driver on the Sydney to Goulburn line. On the morning of the 8th of December, 1941, his locomotive was hauling a goods train north. After passing a special troop train that was heading south, driver Gersbach took his engine past Yerimbul and onto the horseshoe bend that curved through the bush up to Yandera. That's when he saw a pall of smoke and dust rising up from the trees. Rounding further, driver Gersbach hit the brakes and shouted for his guard. Up ahead, the southern railway line had been blown apart. Two craters, each three feet deep, were surrounded by splintered wooden sleepers and the steel rails had been snapped and twisted back like hairpins. Coins glinted in the sun and a confetti of cash blew in the breeze. Some 100 feet from the blast site, a third of the way down the embankment, a rail car lay on its side, shattered almost beyond recognition. Near the destroyed vehicle, driver Gersbach saw two men coming out of the wreckage and then crouching. They couldn't be crew, they weren't wearing railway uniforms. The blokes wore khaki shorts and dark sleeveless shirts. Maybe they were civilians trying to help after this awful accident. In those seconds, one of these men stood up and looked directly at driver Gersbach. Then he bolted up the hill, his mate hard on his heels, and they ran along the embankment. In a flash, the two men were heading down a slope towards the bush. As they ran, the second man slipped, fell, and tumbled all the way to the bottom. Though he had to be pretty banged up, this man bounded to his feet and followed his mate through a hole in a fence, and they both disappeared into the scrub. Driver Gersbach, his guard and fireman raced from their locomotive and down to the wreckage. It was soaked in petrol and it was something of a miracle it hadn't exploded. But that was the only good news. Fifteen yards down the embankment lay driver George Randall, husband to Gladys, father to Gwyneth. He'd been killed instantly, one of his legs blown off. Inside the shattered rail car, Paymaster Fred Walker, husband to Gladys, father to Colin, Betty and John, was covered in debris and suffering terrible injuries. He was alive and conscious, but in too much shock to say a word. Driver Gerspak put Fred into a sitting position and his guard and his fireman tried to stop the bleeding and make him comfortable. Paycar guard Arthur Philpot, husband to Jesse, father to Edward and Merle was even more desperately trapped and suffering even worse injuries. He too was conscious but also rendered speechless by shock and pain. 
leaving his co-workers to do what they could for these trapped men, Driver Gersbach ran back to the locomotive and raced north to Yandera to summon help. But people nearby already knew something was wrong. The massive explosion had been heard three miles away. Track workers had come running. Railway welder Victor Wade was one of the first to arrive. He and the other men couldn't use their oxyacetylene torch to cut the trapped men free for fear of igniting the petrol. But they managed to move wreckage off guard Philpot and saw that one of his legs had been blown off. Alerted by driver Gersbach, barrel ambulance men raced to the scene, reportedly covering 16 miles in 19 minutes. These officers, along with railway workers, secured the wreckage as best they could so it wouldn't slide down the hill while they worked to free the victims. They managed to extricate paymaster Fred Walker. He had severe head and shoulder injuries and compound fractures to both legs. But Alfred Philpot bled out where he was trapped, breathing his last around 1.30pm, just as a Mittagong doctor reached the scene. Survivor Fred Walker was rushed to the district hospital in Barrel. Police swarmed to the crime scene, coming first from Barrel, Mossvale and Mittagong. They threw a cordon around the area. But by then, there were scores of railway workers, civilian men, women and children collecting hundreds or even thousands of pounds in coins and cash that were strewn every which way. Over the coming hours, these people would scoop up handfuls of money and hand it to the local police, or at least hand most of it to the police. Upon learning of the bombing, Sydney CIB detectives and railway officials left the city by car for Yandera. The investigation would be led by the CIB's Detective Inspector William Sheringham and Detective Sergeant Arthur Nye. Both were experienced officers who'd worked railway cases, robbery and murder investigations. Constable Adam Denham, the founder and head of the New South Wales Dog Squad, was also on the way. Having charge of the Bloodhound Disraeli and the Alsatian Zoe, these canine constables, by now Australian celebrities. When the Sydney police reached the scene, detectives inspected the wreckage and surrounding area. Constable Denham unleashed his hounds, but they didn't pick up the scent of whoever had committed this outrage. As for the bombers' motives, given the events of that morning, the first question everyone wanted to answer was, was this an act of Japanese sabotage? Detectives interviewed driver Gersbach and quickly learned what the two suspects looked like. There was no way they were Japanese. But they might have been foreigners because both men were dark-haired and dark-complexioned. So it was possible they'd been Italian or German saboteurs. Both were between 30 and 40, stood about 5'9", and were of medium build. They'd been wearing khaki shorts and dark blue or black sleeveless vests. Both men had looked very sunburned. And one of them had to be sporting injuries given the tumble he'd taken down the embankment. Detectives pieced together how the bombing had been staged. Two explosive devices had been dug into the ground about eight feet apart beneath the railway tracks. They'd been connected to two insulated copper wires that ran down the embankment to a burned out log. Here, police found a pick and a crowbar they believed had been used to dig the holes for the explosives. Behind the burned out log, the murderers, because that's what they were, had enjoyed a clear view back up to the embankment and its approaches. What was absolutely chilling was that there was no way they'd been able to set these explosives after the troop train went by, but before the rail car approached. So, if they'd been enemy saboteurs, they could have killed dozens or even hundreds of Australian soldiers with just the flick of a switch. This made it clear the troop train had not been their target. Besides, it had been unscheduled, whereas the rail car was following its regular routine. The bombers had been after the cash. They'd triggered the detonator when the pay car was directly over a massive amount of explosive. The five-ton vehicle had been hurled 100 feet along the line by its own momentum and the force of the blast before it had toppled down the embankment. Driver Randall had been thrown through the destroyed front window. Chances were he was already dead, 
one of his legs blown off by the terrible blast ripping up through the steel chassis directly beneath him. When FP-155 came to rest, it was with two grievously wounded but conscious men in its wreckage. The explosion had hurled debris as far as 300 yards. Poignantly, this included an intact sandwich which would have been lunch for one of the crew. Had such destruction been what the bombers had intended? Had they actually only intended to destroy the line ahead of the pay car and derail it so they could hold up the crew at gunpoint? Maybe, but it was also common knowledge that these vehicles could be derailed by as little as a stone on the tracks. This didn't seem like accidental overkill. It seemed intended to completely incapacitate the crew and blow open the safe into the bargain. The perpetrators had clearly known FP-155's route and its schedule. Ordinarily, they would have had 20 minutes in which to plunder the wreckage before the goods train from Goulburn passed by this spot. Except that special troop train had been a spanner in the works. FP-155 had been delayed by at least 10 minutes. Nevertheless, the bombers went ahead with their plan. When they came up from their hiding spot, they'd seen what their plan had wrought. One man dead, two others mutilated and in agony, cash and coins strewn among the blood and petrol-soaked debris, more money scattered up and along the embankment, one and five pound notes in the breeze and even caught in the trees. But the safe? It was undamaged, shut tight and still welded to the chassis. So the murdering robbers had collected what money they could before fleeing when driver Gersbach arrived. That evening, two wives were starting lives of grief. Another was hoping against hope that her husband would survive. Mrs. Philpot was so shocked she couldn't speak to anyone and had to be treated by a doctor. Mrs. Randall was to say, I said goodbye to my husband at early breakfast this morning. He's done the trip many times. Now he's dead. I can't believe it. Mrs. Walker's experience was horrific and even more immediate. She'd been travelling that morning by train on the same line down to Mossvale. As she'd say, quote, When the train stopped at Picton, a woman passenger said, Wasn't that a terrible thing about the railway pay train? She then told me what had happened. I felt terrible and the trip to Barrel seemed to take ages. When we passed the scene of the wreck, I could not bear to look out the window. I left the train at Barrel and went to the hospital, but my husband was unconscious and I was unable to see him. Sydney's afternoon tabloids carried the story of this cold-blooded crime. But of course the railcar bombing was small news compared with what was happening across the Pacific. The Sun and the Mirror provided the basic details, the names and ages of the dead crew members, the fact that paymaster Fred Walker was fighting for his life, the descriptions of the two men who'd fled the scene. At least the public could breathe easy knowing this wasn't the start of a war on the home front. The New South Wales Transport Minister stating, quote, Police investigating the outrage are satisfied the motive was robbery. There are no grounds for believing that it was sabotage. But the minister was also getting ahead of himself when he said, I am advised that those who planned the outrage got nothing. Two men dead, another might not live. Had all of this carnage really been caused for nothing? That afternoon, the safe had been cut from the chassis, hauled up the embankment and opened. Railway officials took the cash away and began counting. Whether the culprits had gotten a penny or thousands of pounds didn't make any difference to what would happen if they were caught and convicted. Being found guilty of murder in New South Wales incurred an automatic death penalty. Given how heinous this crime was, they might be the first men to swing since 1939. Yet the bombers being apprehended was already looking like a big if. In cases like this, the police depended on the public to pay attention. If they were paying attention, they might be able to provide information. On any other day, the money car massacre would have been front page news. But not today. With the Japanese on the warpath, Australians had a lot of other things to worry about. 
I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, Pearl Harbor and the Paycar Ambush. Part two will release on regular platforms soon, but it's available now to Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers. So are all four parts of the linked episode, The Terrible Mr. Thomas. As I said, if you'd like to hear them all now, without paying a cent and you use Apple, you can get a three-day free trial. Just make sure you cancel before it expires. Or keep subscribing and help me make this podcast. Now, a big shout out to Victor Hill, an Australian living in Denmark. He subscribed via Apple and wrote to me to say that he enjoys listening to Forgotten Australia when walking around in the minus 15 degrees Celsius temperatures. Victor, better you than me. If, like Victor, you've subscribed through Apple and would like a shout out, let me know via Forgotten Australia Podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks also to recent Patreon supporters Ida Lou, Peter Dortmans, Anne Eager, Angie Shedden, and Cameron Morrison. Big thanks also to Patreon supporter Peter Gross, who was kind enough to share with me some of his incredible family history. Cheers also to Troy Patton for being in touch about The Fugitive, Kevin John Simmons, to Bob Burton, who's researching Marjorie Norval, who we heard about in Season 1, to Colin Bressington, who's in Australia from the UK, looking into his Western Australian convict ancestor, to Lynn Reader, who's researching her great-great-uncle, whose hanging I wrote about in Hanging Ned Kelly, to Jenny Duke, who's writing about her ancestor, Herbert Kopitz, infamous murderer we heard about in the episode Nightmare on the Night Train, and to Janice Newnham, who has written a book called White Lies, which is about Mr. White and the Walworth murder mystery, which we also heard about in Season 1. Finally, a big shout-out to American listener Gavin Whitehead. Gavin's recently launched a podcast called The Art of Crime, which is about when art and crime intersect. It's a great idea, and he's executed it beautifully. Gavin's big on research and deep-dive storytelling. His first season is all about the various artists who were suspected of being none other than Jack the Ripper. Check out The Art of Crime wherever you get your audio. Alright, again, welcome to Season 6, and as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.